This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Sunday Morning's podcast, sponsored by QuickBooks, backing you. If you work for yourself, don't think of that sound as a receipt being crumpled. Think of it as lost deductions, because every business receipt you lose is cash lost. $5, $3, $2. And if you misplace $10 of business receipts every workday for a year, that's $2,600 in lost deductions, unless you've already snapped them with QuickBooks. Snap and sort your expenses for maximum deductions at tax time. Visit QuickBooks.com. Smarter business tools for the world's hardest workers. QuickBooks, backing you. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Just two days to go until Election Day, and uncertainty abounds. Uncertainty about who will win, of course, but also uncertainty about how many of us will even bother to show up at the polls. To counter apathy about our civic life, many are arguing that what this country needs are some old-fashioned lessons about why it matters, as Mo Rocca will report in our cover story. You might have heard there's an election this Tuesday, yet it's expected that more than half of us won't vote. Not voting is voting. It's voting to hand your power over to someone else who's going to say thank you very much. People feel disengaged from politics, and that's because they've permitted themselves to be disengaged. 
We really don't have an option if you want to maintain our republic. Maintaining our republic and why it matters so much ahead on Sunday morning. Our Sunday profile is of Jeff Goldblum, an actor with a style and persona uniquely his own. He'll talk with Anthony Mason. Fairly alarmed here. With his quirky charisma, Jeff Goldblum became a surprise action movie star. Must go faster. In films like Jurassic Park. Did it surprise you? Well, my full lips always held the promise of something essential. <laughs> and the mischievous gleam in my eye. So what does the world look like to Jeff Goldblum? Ooh. We'll try on his glasses. Oh, Could you read the news in these? And see. Would that be of interest to any of our viewers? Later, on Sunday morning. <laughs> Currently on display in many parts of our land, a rainbow of colors, courtesy of nature. With Connor Knighton, we're going leaf peeping. If you've been out admiring the spectacular leaf display this fall, you may have spotted, mixed in among the yellows and oranges, a man in a little red SUV. I can cover the distance of driving across the country, basically, in one season just in New England. Photographer Jeff Folger, he goes by Jeff Foliage, spends every autumn on the road yes, sharing the secrets the of where light. and when the best colors can be found. Meet Fall's biggest fan ahead on Sunday morning. Leaving them laughing is the job of actors in TV situation comedies. Putting those shows on the air in the first place is the job of the man Tony DeCopel has visited. Three, two, one. If you've ever laughed at a moment on any of these hit sitcoms, chances are it's because this man, producer Chuck Lorre, thought it was funny first. I don't see comedy as, oh, that's amusing. <laughs> How clever the wordplay was so sparkling. I want to laugh. Later on Sunday morning, the Hollywood heavyweight, whose life might just be worthy of a sitcom of its own. Tracy Smith takes us to a musical slumber party. Steve Hartman finds rival candidates striking a harmonious chord. We'll hear from a witness to the 1978 Jonestown Massacre. And more, all coming up when our Sunday morning podcast continues. Remember these? Staying home on Election Day is a matter of choice, of course. But no American should forfeit their vote without first considering why it matters. Moraka reports our cover story. There's no such thing as not voting, right? Not voting is voting. It's voting to hand your power over to someone else uh, who's going to say, thank you very much. Let me take uh, that voice and that power and exercise it in your name, but in my interests. Makes sense, right? And yet... Less than half of eligible voters are expected to show up at the polls this Tuesday. And that's a vexing problem, according to Eric Liu. I think the greatest enemy here is indifference. And indifference can take various forms. One is, the game is rigged, so why should I even bother paying attention? My vote doesn't matter. My vote doesn't matter. Uh, the other form is, huh? What? Just complete, uh, you know, not even apathy, but complete ignorance. Across the country, there has been a disinvestment in civic education. 
which is why Lou started Citizen University, a program which travels the country teaching Americans of all ages the lost art of civics. Civic Saturday is about taking seriously our country's creed of liberty and equal justice. Now I know what you're thinking. Civics? Ugh. Didn't I take that in high school? Well, if you're over the age of 60, you probably did. Civics is, simply put, the study of how to be a good citizen. In fact, that was the original mission of public schools, creating good citizens. Part of that, and just a part of it, was learning how government works. Legislative, executive, judicial. These are the three main branches of our federal government. It's been well documented that the partisan discord in our country followed very closely on the heels of schools stopping to teach civic education. That's One Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She and fellow Justice Neil Gorsuch agreed to talk to us about their work promoting civic education. We talked about this a lot. Um, only about 25 percent of Americans can name the three branches of government. A third of them can't name any branch of government. And 10 percent believe that Judge Judy is one of our colleagues. Is that now, right? I, with no disrespect to Judge Judy, she is not a member of the Supreme Court. But Sandra Day O'Connor was. The retired justice has led the drive to return civics to the classroom. I well remember having a lot of civics classes, and I got pretty sick and tired of it, to tell you the truth. I thought it was miserable. So she started iCivics, a more engaging curriculum to teach civics with the help of video games. The most popular games in iCivics.org are first, how to win the White House. And this is why you should vote for me. And the second most popular game is, do I have a right? Clients come to us so we can protect their rights, as found in the amendments to the U.S. Constitution. That's a tough game. That's a tough very, game. Very, very tough. You know, uh, it's important if we, the people, are going to run our government, that we know what it is, how it works, and how we can participate in it. Now, a second important component of civics is civility. Civility is manners, you know, that thing in short supply these days. You and I learning to disagree without tearing each other's heads off. But that doesn't mean everyone agreeing on everything. Half of you are gonna be assigned the position of supporting this idea of getting rid of offensive mascots. You know, I tell my students, I don't want you to come in here and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. You know, I want us to have better arguments. I want us to understand these complex issues that face our republic. West Chicago Community High School's Mary Ellen Daniels wants her students to debate controversial topics. Without these mascots, many people wouldn't know the history of some of these Native Americans. I argue that it would be even more awkward to walk into a gym, you know, as somebody with Native American history, you know, and looking at what is supposed to be representing, representative of your culture. Okay, but you're not shying away from what's actually happening right now. No. Whether it's presidential tweets, whether it's fights on the floor of, of the house. Um, to be honest, I don't use a textbook in my classroom. Our textbook is the newspaper. It's not about the conflict as much as it's about how you speak 
seniors Daniela Almorales, Spencer Usedon, Sabrina Lutfieva, and Rudy Munoz are currently in the course. How big a role is President Trump playing in your class? The president's, you know, infamous, like, Twitter account, you know, that, that's just like an everyday Tuesday for most of us. We deal with a lot of drama every day because it's high school and <laughs> yeah, a lot of stuff goes down in the hallways. We're teenagers and we can be civil with each other, but in the, in the professional world, I don't see that. Do you look at the TV and yell at the politicians and say, you're making my job harder? I do, but I also say sometimes, thank you, because you're an object lesson for my students of, if you don't do this, this is what it looks like. Here's a view at the end of the road. Is this what you want? And that brings us to the last big part of civics. It's kind of the loftiest part, putting country over yourself, and yes, even over your own party. This guy knows what I'm talking about. There have been many moments in American history where we had partisanship every bit as intense as right now, and actually we saw great outcomes, great progress. We have different views, we have different ideas, we have arguments, that's good, that's the nature of a healthy democracy. But we also need to have something, what holds us together? Harvard Business School professor David Moss teaches the history of democracy. That's the part that I'm worried about. Um, and I think the, the reason our partisanship looks less constructive than it once was, maybe even destructive, is that we don't have that glue holding us together and that glue is a strong faith, a strong commitment, a strong belief in the democracy. Consider then that only 30% of Americans born after 1980 say that it's essential to live in a democracy. But Moss isn't alarmed, yet. The American democracy has been more resilient than many people expected, but can it break? And the answer from the 1850s up to 1860 and 61 is that yes, it can. And so I think we have to just be careful with it. There's no panacea here, right? I mean, how are we going to boost these numbers on belief in democracy? You know, I think bringing civics back into school, but not civics that students say is boring. But we want to look for things that engage students, that are substantive, and, and you know, that they're excited about. Ah, if only life were as simple as those civics films of yesteryear. Well, Bill, Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln are dead. They began our democracy, but they knew the job would have to be finished by those who lived after them. What do you say to the people who, and there are a lot of them, I think, who say, you know, the reality of government doesn't match up with textbook civics? And my answer is, what are you doing about it? If you really care, then you can't complain, you have to do. Then we can have a conversation. It's our government, Bill. From here on, it's up to us. This is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. And now a page from our Sunday Morning Almanac. November 4th, 1916, 102 years ago today. The day future CBS News correspondent Walter Cronkite was born in St. Joseph, Missouri. I'm just back from the biggest assignment that any American... Cronkite became a journalist at a young age as a reporter for the United Press during World War II. Good evening, everyone. This is Walter Cronkite. He joined CBS News in 1950, and in September 1963, he anchored a television news breakthrough. 
the first broadcast of network television's first daily half-hour news program. Just two months later, Walter Cronkite would break into afternoon network programming with a bulletin that chills us to this day. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. In 1968, Walter Cronkite traveled to Vietnam and made headlines of his own with his assessment of the war. It is increasingly clear to this report that the only rational way out will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. One hour and 16 minutes. Then, in July of 1969, a far happier moment. Look at that rocket go into the cloud. The first manned landing on the moon. Man on the moon. Oh, boy. Boy. At first, it was called the Watergate caper. Walter Cronkite's even-handed and authoritative reporting earned him the unofficial title, the most trusted man in America. It is always true in the biggest... And after nearly two decades in the evening news anchor chair, he signed off one last time with his signature close. And that's the way it is. Friday, March 6, 1981. Walter Cronkite died in 2009 at the age of 92. The high standards he established guide CBS News to this day. Penny, Penny, Penny. What's the gist, physicist? <laughs> Jim Parsons' persistent door knocking on the Big Bang Theory is known to leave him laughing. Turns out, the man behind that show and many other TV comedies did plenty of knocking on doors himself back in the day. He's Chuck Lorre, who Tony DeCopel tells us takes comedy very seriously. This is Chuck Lorre Productions. Chuck Lorre Productions, yep. If you thought the classic American sitcom was dying... And this is where you park your car. This is where I parked my car. Go visit Chuck Lorre on the Warner Brothers lot in Los Angeles. Lori has all but single-handedly kept the sitcom genre alive, producing some of the biggest hits of the past three decades. Come on, I've seen steelier nerves from a cat on the freeway. That's ridiculous. Jingle! Chuck, right here, please. And that's not even counting what he's got going on now. Big Bang Theory is stage 25. Stage 20 is mom. 19 is one of two stages for... Uh, for young Sheldon. Last season, those three shows averaged more than 40 million viewers a week. Led by the single most watched series on television, The Big Bang Theory on CBS. The fundamental problem with elementary quantum mechanical formalism is that the Fourier transform extends to minus infinity in time. Hey, don't dumb this down for me. <laughs> The show, about a group of socially awkward scientists, is in its final season. This is going to be heartbreaking when we're done. This is just going to be very, very difficult to end this after 12 years. Smell that? That's the smell of new comic books. Oh, yes. 
The Big Bang Theory for me was about people who don't fit in, who want to fit in, who want to participate in life but don't know how. That's a story worth telling. And that is the secret to Chuck Lorre's success. Don't only try to be funny, try to be honest. Keep it real. Real family dynamics, real family issues. Is that it? Yep. It's the most accurate pregnancy test on the market. Don't tell silly stories. Which is why perhaps the most successful sitcom creator since Norman Lear in the 1970s hates the word sitcom or situation comedy. Situation, I think, is the appropriate word if you marry a witch or if you come home from being an astronaut and you have a genie with you. Good morning, Master Darling. That's a situation. Right? <laughs> And now, the 66-year-old Lori has a new show about the one situation we all have in common, getting older. It's an amazing thing because internally, there's still this 14-year-old looking out of this old face. You walk past a window, a store window, and you go, oh, who, oh, it's startling. The Kaminsky Method stars Alan Arkin and Michael Douglas as aging Hollywood players. It starts streaming this month on Netflix. You do not want to be in a sitcom. What are you talking about? I mean, those little pictures on the, the, the Big Bang thing, they're making a million bucks a week. Sandy, it's pablum, it's crap. You're one of the all-time great acting coaches. What's it going to look like you're doing a network sitcom? One of the reasons why I wanted to do the Kaminsky Method was humor. I love humor. It's not my natural affinity. But for me, I thought, here's an opportunity to work with the best. And for Lori, the format feels completely new after decades of filming in front of a live studio audience. People think that the laughter's canned. Yeah, no, turn the cameras around. There's all these seats. There's a couple hundred people that sit here. And when they're not laughing, it's horrifying. Yeah. And we rewrite the material, we reshoot it, we do whatever we can. So how do you trust that a moment that you think is working in your edit room on Kaminsky is gonna work in people's living room. I, that's the word you just used is the whole thing. It's trust. You, you, you have to go on faith. This is just a matter of, I, I like this. I hope you do too. That small window up there on the right was my bedroom. I used to lean out as a teenager and blow the pot smoke outside because <laughs> I was so clever. You could say Chuck Lorre's first sitcom really took care. place on New York's Long Island. A lot happened in 12 years in this house where he grew up with a volatile mother and a father whose business was constantly in danger of failing. This was reality. You know, this, this, this is what I knew. One person Lori wishes he knew longer was his father, Robert. Can I indulge you in a game of catch that we'll call work? We'll call work? Yeah. He died when Lori was just 24, missing all of his son's success. I'd give anything, anything to have experienced some of this stuff with my dad. After his father died, Lori drifted, spending the next decade as a struggling musician until something had to change for the sake of his children. There was no alternative other than make money. You must make money. You have children. It's not really an option. To survive, he took a job selling radios door-to-door -door in Los Angeles. One of those doors ended up leading to an animation company. And I walked in there, and there was a bunch of people working, and uh, I had the temerity to say, uh, hey, this is your lucky day. 
<laughs> and I said, uh, I, I'm a writer. Uh, you do comedy? Uh, yes, sometimes. Okay, great. I'm your guy. There's great power in ignorance and naivete. I didn't know I couldn't. Lori's career took off. And I worked on that show, too. But as some doors opened, others slammed shut. He was fired, pushed out, or quit many of his early jobs. And in 2006, Entertainment Weekly dubbed him the angriest man in television. No, I think I'm, I'm, I'm a teddy bear. You are a teddy bear now, clearly. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to get at what changed. You've mellowed. What happened? I'm trying. I'm trying to have more perspective and, and uh, this is more personal than I really want to get into on CBS Sunday morning. But fear for me exhibits his anger because I'm not going to show you fear. I'm going to show you anger because that's just how I grew up and that's what you present to the world and that maybe becomes your reputation. Lately though, Lori has worked to rewrite that reputation. He even says he'd be open to shaking hands with Charlie Sheen, whose bizarre public downfall in 2011 threatened one of Lori's hits, Two and a Half Men. No, not chicken, just good common sense. Fighting accomplishes nothing. Oh, I didn't know you were so French. I'm really proud of what we did. I, I, every once in a while, I'll catch some reruns. The shows hold up. We did good stuff, we, and we had a good time. And it was, uh, it was a horrific thing that happened. It had happened a long time ago. Moving on. But Chuck Lorre knows that even as he moves on with the Kaminsky method, his new perspective has limits. I got to stay grateful and not go down the road of whether or not I'm getting my due. That'd be some whiny nonsense if I went down that road. Will that be your philosophy if people don't tune in to Kaminsky? I'll be heartbroken. <laughs> <laughs>
He photographs and posts the locations of the most scenic spots on his website and Facebook page so that he can share them with fellow fans of fall. I want to let everybody know where they can find the best locations. This is what New Hampshire has to offer, Maine has to offer, you know, Vermont, Rhode Island. You don't work for the Tourism Bureau for any no. of those places. Why is no. it important for you to share that? I like being helpful. Folger lives in Salem, Massachusetts, and can drive up to 5,000 miles in a season. When you look at the news and stuff, they show broad bands of color. Well, that, that doesn't really tell the story. Just because an area claims to have the best foliage, not every grove or hillside's going to. So Jeff tries to be specific. Go to this barn, this overlook. That's where the good stuff is. It's around the bend. It's down the road a ways. You're gonna see it, you're gonna go, wow. Everyone is obsessed with finding peak color, Fulcher included. But for him, the journey is just as fun. I like to say peak is more of a myth. Um, it's really more about the experience of getting out in the woods, exploring, uh, finding things that you really love, and you can take home the memories. Folger has a thing for old churches and covered bridges. He can spend entire days wandering around a small town like North Conway, New Hampshire. I like to stop and really savor when I find these things and you know, kind of get a taste for it. I think that's the best way. And yet, the clock is ticking. A few weeks from now, this will all look entirely different. Oh yeah, we're gonna lose a thousand leaves off that tree overnight. The winds are <laughs> right about 20, 30 miles an oh, hour. There goes one right there. Oh, oh, yep, oh yep, a little yep. bit of fall. Oh, it's happening. It's Winter's done. coming. There you go. Oh, no, shh, shh. Not, not that, no, no. <laughs> Folger has an amazing level of fall recall. Part of the reason he takes pictures is so he can remember his favorite days long after the leaves have left. 2012, 2 October, 6 a.m., uh, Beaver Pond in on North Woodstock, Route 112, Lost River Gorge. And it was just a beautiful morning. The water on the pond there is perfectly still, and the reflection is just a mirror of everything on the hill. And it was just glorious. You know, I remember things like that. Imagine a slumber party set to music, a concert that actually encourages the audience to fall asleep. Tracy Smith settles in for the night. New York. It really is the city that never sleeps. That is, unless New Yorkers are listening to something like this. It's called Sleep by composer Max Richter, a soothing instrumental piece that goes on for eight hours. Yes, eight hours. That's kind of a lot to sit through, so while Max is on stage, the audience is in bed. In fact, sleep might be the first performance ever where it's okay if you sleep through it. Why intentionally compose a piece that puts people to sleep? Well, we're a little bit data saturated, a little bit overloaded, we're 24-7, and um, I wanted to offer 
a kind of a, a place to rest. Uh, you know, it's a, a place to just kind of step off that treadmill for a minute. Of course, this isn't Richter's only gig. He's written music for stage and screen, like this short film, On the Nature of Daylight. The distraught-looking woman is Elizabeth Moss. And Richter's also scored some longer films. His latest is the upcoming Mary Queen of Scots. But sleep has, well, awakened some new interest. You have to stay awake while everyone else sleeps. Yes, well, I'm, I'm sort of jet-lagged now, the right amount. So that, for me, it's really morning. This past summer, Richter brought his New Age slumber party to Los Angeles, where more than 500 people paid around 80 bucks a head for sleep under the stars. Tonight's performance is the West Coast premiere of Max Richter's Sleep. The ground rules were simple. Bring your own bedding and try not to annoy anyone else. You might also hear some snoring. So if it is disturbing to you that a neighbor of yours is snoring, it is also okay to slightly nudge them and try to get them to stop snoring. But please, no fights, uh, no brawls or anything like that. Happily, no one we met was in a brawling mood. Are you a little apprehensive about it? It's a different experience. Yeah, um, I kind of am, especially because you're sleeping around so many people and it's outside. I've never slept like outside, not in a tent, um, but I'm excited. Is it kind of strange to be paying for a concert that you're going to sleep through? I think I'm going to let the music guide me and make a decision based on whatever the music induces. So. Do you snore? We'll find out. <laughs> or everybody else would. <laughs> the piece began around 10.30 as the full moon rose dreamily over L.A. City Hall. Richter starts with a series of gentle, repetitive tones, and within minutes, people started drifting off. Of course, Max had about seven hours to go. Do you ever find yourself nodding off? Not nodding off, but it is really hard physically. When I sit down at the piano, the beginning of the show, there's 250 pages of piano music to play through. 250 which is pages. A lot of pages. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it's physically very tough, the gig. It's, it's like a marathon. Still, it was pretty easy listening for the audience. 90 minutes in, most of them were totally, blissfully zonked out. If people snore, is that a compliment? It is, actually. That I find it kind of comforting if I hear snoring in the room or in the audience. It's like having a cat purring. You know, you feel like things are settled and everything's working, yeah. Six hours later, just as the light started coming up, the music got louder and more insistent, like a musical sunrise. The one person the music didn't seem to affect at all was Max himself. I can't sleep with music on, which is the paradox. What? Because if, I'm, if there's music, then I'm working. You know, my brain is sort of analytical on, in the kind of analysis mode and thinking about the music and thinking what's going on. So this doesn't work on you? It doesn't work on me. I'm immune. <laughs> <laughs> but it did seem to work on everyone else. In a world where so much is competing to keep us awake, a lullaby could be just the thing.
Is civility really a lost cause in these partisan times? Not necessarily. Steve Hartman has found some political rivals striking a chord. In Lamoille County, Vermont, the fall colors are at their peak. Everywhere you look, bursts of Lucy Rogers green and Zach Mayo red, white, and blue. He's the Republican. We don't need as much government. Yeah, and she's the Democrat. I'm pretty centrally focused on health care. They're competing for a state house seat, aggressively competing. Both have visited or plan to visit every single home in the district, all 2,000 plus. The locals say they've never seen anything like it. They're both all in. They're out talking to people. Knocking on a lot of doors. They both want to win in the worst way. But this highly competitive race took a dramatic turn recently. It happened during their debate when the candidates asked for a few extra minutes at the end to do something together. I'm not sure what it is. They stood up from their tables and began moving the furniture, preparing for what appeared to be some kind of musical performance. But I had no idea what. Great. Even the moderator didn't know. I don't believe anybody did. Indeed. What happened at the local library that night was completely unexpected and totally unprecedented. Because we asked them if we could have a few minutes at the end to play a duet. A duet. A duet. It strikes a chord. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. To say to the world that this is a better way. Democrat and Republican united in perfect harmony. There weren't enough tissues to go around. Very sweet and kind, and it just drew you into a different place. It marked a turning point for us. It gave me a lot of hope. It was what we really needed, what we had needed all along. The song they played that night, and for us again after, is about a deep yearning for a less competitive society. Hope you're not lonely without me. Their rendition so resonated with folks here in northern Vermont, we actually saw houses that had signs for both candidates. A clear indication that the winner of this race has already been decided. A landslide victory for civility. Occasionally. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always on the lookout for a future ex-Mrs. Malcolm. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. And that, of course, is Jeff Goldblum in a quirky exchange with Sam Neill in the 1993 dinosaur thriller Jurassic Park. Odd characters are Goldblum's specialty, as we'll see in our Sunday profile from Anthony Mason. Jeff Goldblum's life is like a jazz piece. His acting improvisational. Wow. Wow, I didn't hear any thunder, but out of your fingers, was that like sp sparkles? His style, unpredictable. <laughs> I'm a strange figure, aren't I? He's made an art of being offbeat. There's a cadence to your speech. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that hearty laugh. Hey, you, I'd like to hear you sing. A no, nice, you wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> Listen to that voice. 
I'd like to hear you in South Pacific. If ever I would leave you. Anthony Mason is. Rosano Brazzi. Yeah, I'd like to see that. Some enchanted evening. I want to see you. You've that. hijacked this line of questioning. Okay, go ahead. He starred in two of the 90s biggest blockbusters. Time's up. Hey, you know how I'm like, I'm always trying to save the planet? As a computer geek in Independence Day. There's my chance. And as a math whiz who fights off dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Must go faster. Last summer, on the film's 25th anniversary, they erected a 25-foot statue of him in London. There may have been several of these over your career, but this seems to be another Jeff Goldblum moment. Thanks, Arna. <laughs> Suddenly, at 66, he's become a fashion icon, honored by InStyle magazine, just the night before he invited us. Want to know anything about this? I'll, I'll tell you anything you want to know. Into his closet. I'd like to see you in this. To examine his eye for the unusual. Very, very handsome. Like the vintage frames he bought for his part in Grand Budapest Hotel. Very professorial. Oh, sure, you know, and in that part, I had a hat and a, and a uh, kind of a goatee. Even his skills as a musician are finally getting recognition. Goldblum, who for 20 years has played a weekly gig at an L.A. jazz club with the Mildred Snitzer Orchestra, named for a family friend, will release his first album next week. What do you get from it? What I always got from it, early on in Pittsburgh, I had set my sights on acting. I was obsessed with it, but I loved playing piano. Young Jeff Goldblum frustrated his music teacher at first. But then when he brought this arrangement of Alley Cat with syncopation, which I felt inside, it was like, mm. like that. At 17, he took his musical talent and acting aspirations to New York and almost immediately got a part in an off-Broadway play. And then an agent saw me in that and sent me up for my first movie audition, right. Death Wish, in 1973. That was your very first film audition. Yes, sir. You were freak number one. I was freak number one. Well-researched, that's correct. <laughs> Early on, I got some lucky opportunities. And then Annie Hall, that's a funny line. That yeah, I, you got one line, but it was a good one. I got a good line. I forgot my mantra. He got to wear chaps and a cowboy hat in the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. But I was a brain surgeon, I was a smart guy, slash adventure, just like me. <laughs> and then the big chill. Friendship is the bread of life. Aww. Wait a minute, wait a minute, but money is the honey. It doesn't and da -da 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 -da, and you know, yeah. Yeah, that's a strange thing to do. His first leading role was in The Fly. The critic Roger Ebert wrote, his natural oddness makes him perfect for the part. What have I really done though? All I've done is say to the world, let's go, move, catch me if you can, waiter. I was interested early on in making sure that my quirks or whatever they were didn't hold me back. You call them quirks? Yes, yes. Oh, okay, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'm just curious how you perceive them. Well, look, even as I sit here now, I'd be stupid and entirely unaware if, even though I'm not trying to do anything for effect, this is authentic to me, and I've developed whatever this nincompoopery is. I'd be pretending if I say I, I, I didn't know it was 
different than right down the middle. <laughs> you know, it's a little, yeah. a little funny here and there. And if you like it, it's just your cup of tea. And if not, oh, it's a little too hot. I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. One part he almost didn't get, the role of Dr. Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park. Director Steven Spielberg told him. We're working on the script, and this last draft didn't include your character. Your character's been cut out. And I was like, oh, no, no. Mr. Spielberg, you know better than I do, but off the top of my head, here's why I think this character might be useful, but the, the, the character wound up back in the picture. Yeah. And so did I. <laughs> How about that? Back in his closet, on the wall, Goldblum has a gallery of his relatives. Here is my dad. His father was a doctor to Pittsburgh steel workers. His mother worked in radio. There's a, my sister's rendering of my mom yeah, block print uh, thing. She just died a few years ago in her mid-80s. Here are my two brothers that are no longer with us. My brother Rick died when he was 23. Yeah. I was 19 when he died yeah. uh, in, in this, doing this Broadway show in New York. And, uh, did that really rock the family? Oh, yes. Yes, it did. Sure. Yeah, it did. Yeah, sorry. For the oh, only okay. time in our conversation, that's okay. he is speechless. Uh, do you like hats? Would you like to try on a hat? Goldblum has lived in the same West Hollywood home for 30 years. High up on the hill in back, he has a bench. He brought his wife Emily here just after they met. We'd only known each other a day, and we'd met at the gym, and I, and I walked her up there and showed us a great view from up there. And... Um, and we kissed for the first time. That's very romantic. It's romantic. Goldblum and Emily Livingston, a 35-year-old former Olympic gymnast, married in 2014. Now, at 66, he is a father for the first time. We were Joe 18 months. And then Charlie. I get a big kick out of them. I'm fascinated by them. Were you worried at all that you'd be able to keep up? Well, uh, there you go. Good, good question. I, that's very graciously put. Uh, I, 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 there's that laugh again. Some enchanted evening. When I told Albert Brooks a few years ago, yes. whom I'm lucky to know a little bit, we're going to have a baby. Then I know you went, I'll give you a word of advice. Look for schools with ramps. <laughs> Ram, ramps. <laughs> He's so funny. With new kids, a new album, and a new look, Jeff Goldblum says he's just a late bloomer. Joe Brevac, my seventh grade teacher, used to write on, write on the blackboard a quote from Abraham Lincoln. I shall study and prepare myself so that when my chance comes, I will be ready. It was seventh grade, and that's still... You still remember it. I remember it, and I'm trying to apply it. And you feel ready. What I'm saying is that this late blooming business in all aspects of my personage, I'm, fl fl I'm flowering, and I'm fuller and uh, fruitier than ever, yeah. <laughs>
Their deaths came not long after a deadly attack on a U.S. congressman's fact-finding mission to Guyana. Memories of that Jonestown visit still loom large for current California Congresswoman Jackie Speer. Good evening. The story out of Guyana is like a nightmare that just won't quit. Please. In November 1978, I was an attorney on the staff of Congressman Leo Ryan, part of the mission he brought to Guyana to investigate Jim Jones. Take your glasses off. Just just dare in our faith. The wildly charismatic leader of the People's Temple. We had received credible reports of his followers being abused and held against their will. The compound was impressive. Members of Jonestown were certainly saying all the right things, no matter how rote. But someone slipped us a note asking for help. I felt my stomach turn into hard knots of terror as we realized our worst fears about Jones were true. When cameras were rolling, he spoke of how he loved his followers and would always have a place for them. But off camera, he muttered about treason and liars. He was cracking, and all I wanted to do was get out of there. Ryan assigned me to escort the first airlift out of Jonestown. As I was loading defectors on the two planes, a tractor trailer with seven gunmen arrived at the airstrip. The gunmen opened fire on us at point-blank range. Five bullets pierced my body. Congressman Ryan and four others lay dead. What I didn't know then was that more than 900 followers of Jones, including hundreds of children, would later that night ingest cyanide at his command, an act some call suicide, but I call murder. I was helped into the baggage compartment for safety and later moved to a tent on the airstrip where I waited 22 hours for help to arrive. Surviving against unimaginable odds can make every day that follows swell with a renewed sense of purpose. We don't get to choose our formative moments. Very often, adversity and failure shape us more permanently than fortune and success. That has certainly been the case in my life. Pain yields action. It can introduce a fervor to speak out for those whose voices are not heard. Surviving Jonestown crystallized where I needed to focus my energy. It convinced me that I had a purpose to devote my career to fighting for the voiceless. I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening. And please join us again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.